Welcome to Season 2 of the Preoccupation Podcast. This season explores the mid to late 19th century of Ottoman Palestine, and, uh, and it takes us on a journey with stops in Istanbul, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and, of course, everywhere in Palestine. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at preoccupationpod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians. There never was, there never will be. Walk with me through the wreckage left by the violence of 1860 and try to appreciate the carnage for yourself. Look around and you'll see that what used to be bustling markets are now a mix of blood and ash. The debris makes it impossible to quickly dispose of all the bodies so the stink of death has lingered long after the violence has subsided. The hot rage that swept through the Levant has cooled, but now the participants have to look each other in the eye, look at their own neighbors, and wonder, did he do this? Did he burn down my home? Did he murder my children? Did he destroy my shop? This scene was repeated in Beirut, Damascus, and other cities and towns. And while Palestine itself was not the site of any major disruptions and violence, you can bet that the tensions that emerged from that violence were felt on the streets and in the alleyways of Al-Quds, of Yaffa, and elsewhere. It's hard to imagine that from this chaos that anything sensible can emerge. But that is precisely what happened. And to tell you just how this happened, I'm going to take you on a tour of European colonialism's single most successful institution. The one institution, the one legacy of colonialism that has touched probably every single person listening to this podcast, and that is the modern school. In virtually every corner of the world, in every country on earth, what we recognize as schooling has all but annihilated indigenous forms of learning. In fact, we have come to consider schools to be synonymous with learning itself, 
to such an extent that we have a difficult time even imagining that there was a time when other modes of learning even existed. And when we do imagine those other modes of learning, we think of them as as archaic, I mean, even primitive. In our world, schooling as an institution has bipartisan, cross-cultural, multiracial backing. I mean, one of the safest things a politician can do to win support from all income classes is to build more schools. Well, this entire episode is going to be a deep dive into the educational landscape of the mid-19th century Ottoman Empire, a time where where schools were not so universally loved, a time when local populations viewed these institutions with, with deep, deep suspicion, I mean, for a fear of the nefarious project that was potentially hidden within their walls. So let's start off with a simple question. Why do we even have schools? I mean, what is their purpose? Why did any of us have to sit in a classroom for 11 or 12 or 13 years of our lives? I'm not sure if I've ever actually mentioned this, but I'm a social studies teacher. And one of my favorite questions to ask is precisely this. Why do we have schools? Why do schools exist? The answers are always fun, but for the most part, in the English-speaking world, we associate school with jobs. So we go to school to get the skills necessary to perform the tasks that the modern workforce demands of us. And usually 99% of the answers I get sound something like that. The one time when I asked this, uh, one girl, a 12-year-old girl, said, to grow up and contribute to the economy which is a really bizarre thing to say when you think about it, right? Like this 12-year-old girl felt like she has a debt to this thing, the economy, which she barely understands. But anyway, schools are obviously very good at meeting the goals of a modern, industrialized, capitalist society. It's hard to argue with that. But one of the more subversive purposes behind schooling, and in fact, the main reason why standardized education has successfully spread to every country on earth, is that schools are the vehicle for the national narrative. In fact, schools can even be the place where national consciousness comes into existence. Schools are the place where the story of the nation crystallizes into a mass narrative that everyone is familiar with. The school model of learning is successful because it is integral to the success of the nation state. Now, I don't expect you to take that claim lying down, so let me give you just one small example to prove this point. I want you all to imagine your country, whatever that means to you, Imagine it. What do you see? If I tell you to imagine Canada or imagine America or imagine Russia, if you imagine for long enough, at some point you're going to think of, you know, some of the landmarks and the symbols, but you're also going to think of the map of that country. Now think back to your social studies class. I think Americans call it civic studies, but anyways, so think back to your social studies class. Nearly every such class in the world has a map of the host country pinned on the wall. Why? Well, 
The answer is that maps are a big part of what constitutes our national imagination. For most of human history, Canada could accurately have been described as something unimaginably large. And I mean that literally, larger than our imagination could have comprehended. And yet, modern maps overcome precisely that hurdle. They turn the unimaginable into a single graphic, colored in to reflect political boundaries as if they were natural and eternal. They help us imagine who is the us and who is the other that belongs to the gray, non-colored part of the map. Maps and schools really did evolve together. And to understand how significant this is, just think to yourself, how many people in the time before schooling had seen a map of the place that they live? Now think about how geographically limited their imagination was with regards to the place that they live relative to your imagination of the country that you live in. But not only do schools teach you the geography of your nation state, the presence of a standardized education system means that you expect that someone who lives on the other side of the country that you live in, someone who you will never ever meet, will have seen a very similar map in a very similar classroom and has a very similar understanding of where they are and who they are. You may never meet that person, but you too have a pretty consistent understanding of the world that was formed in a classroom. That is just one small example of the incredible power contained in a modern, standardized education system. Anyway, there is no denying that schools are effective in in the two major functions that I've already listed, the transfer of skills and the preservation of a national narrative. In this regard, they were much more effective than the standard mode of learning available to Palestinians and the people of the Middle East in general in the 19th century. Up until the early 1830s, the Ottoman Empire's Muslim subjects were primarily educated through the Qutab system. The Qutab was a tutor, and the studies usually took place in mosques or institutions known as madrasas, which also literally just means school in Arabic, but I will continue to use the term madrasa so as to distinguish between these institutions and the modern schools that came after. So the Qutab would teach children how to read, write, they would teach them proper recitation of the Qur'an, uh, as well as some basic arithmetic, logic, and rational proofs for the existence of God. Such an education system existed primarily to improve one's relationship with God. And in that, they did a good job. The Qutab did not exist, however, to teach you how to become better at your job, unless your job was to become an Islamic scholar or a Sharia court official or something of that kind. Remember, the vast majority of Ottoman subjects, particularly in Palestine, were fallahin, or peasants. For the fallah, the kutab were spiritual mentors, but they did not provide you with skills to make you a better peasant. Those skills were learned on the job. And importantly for this episode, the Qutab also did not teach you about 
your place in the world vis-a-vis the Sultan and the Ottoman administration, or the stories of the social, political, and economic community around you. While as the Ottoman Empire grew susceptible to foreign agents, the educational landscape began to rapidly change both in Palestine as well as in the neighboring lands. Now, to tell this part of the story, I'm going to revisit the evangelical American missionaries and their mission to civilize the Orient. As I mentioned last episode, the first batch of American missionaries began arriving in 1820. But by 1848, nearly 30 years after their arrival, the entire project could only boast a meager 75 converts to Protestant Christianity in all of greater Syria. There were numerous obstacles to their evangelizing mission, one of which was the fact that they were foreigners. Even if the missionaries went through the trouble of learning the local language, they knew that hearing the gospel from their neighbors was bound to be more convincing than hearing it from American missionaries. And so these American missionaries began establishing schools with the dual purpose of converting the locals and also inspiring those locals to take on the evangelical mission themselves. By the mid-19th century, Greater Syria was home to 30 primary schools with nearly 900 students. The overwhelming majority of the students enrolled at this time were Christians of local denominations, so either Maronite, Greek Orthodox, or something else. And as I said just a moment ago, the vast majority who are attending these schools did not convert to Protestant Christianity. But the schools offered these communities the opportunity to develop very important skills precisely at the moment when the Ottoman Empire was undergoing this massive political and social transformation from empire to nation-state. So the graduates of these schools may not have left these schools as Protestants, but they left with something resembling a modern education at a time where the vast majority of their neighbors were illiterate. They left with personal relationships and connections to the missionaries as well, who the missionaries who still ran these schools. And here, the schools ran into their first major curricular problem. The administration of these schools, they were deeply committed to their evangelizing mission. But they were also believers in American exceptionalism as imagined in the 19th century. So, unsurprisingly then, the language of instruction in the very earliest decades of these schools' existence was, you guessed it, English. The problem with this is that the graduates came out preferring to speak in English than in Arabic. Not only that, but these graduates saw themselves as the equals to the missionaries, a belief that was entirely consistent with the evangelical gospel that they were preaching. But this is a bit more than the missionaries could stomach. I mean, despite their message of brotherhood in Christ, the missionaries very much believed that it was their job to lead the flock and their students were to follow their lead. There was only so much room on Olympus. No natives allowed. 
and it didn't take long for the missionaries to realize that they had produced a class of bourgeoisie locals who could not, or would not, effectively proselytize in the local language. And so, by as early as 1834, the American missionaries made the decision to make Arabic the language of instruction for the missionary schools in greater Syria. To make this transition, the books themselves had to be translated into Arabic, which brought to Beirut what may have been the first printing press in the region. Now, I need to be clear, though, that this decision to change the language of instruction was not a painful decision for the missionaries. Through their time in Greater Syria, and through their interaction with Arabic literature, the missionaries actually developed quite an appreciation for the Arabic language and what they referred to as the Arab race. They wrote extensively on the subject. And that certainly became part of the curriculum. The effort to produce this curriculum and the shift from English to Arabic language instruction, as well as the admiration for Arabic literature and the Arab race, ends up being a massively important part of this story and a significant moment in the career of one man. Butros al-Bustani was born in 1819, just one year before the arrival of the first American missionaries. He was born into a Maronite family, and his aptitude opened doors for him to study away from home within the larger institutions of the Maronite church. But that never came to be because his widowed mother needed him close to home. So instead, as luck would have it, a chance encounter with one of the American missionaries, Eli Smith, resulted in Bustani becoming one of the few Protestant converts in the early days of the mission. But Bustani wasn't just a product of the missionary education that we have been speaking about. He was a contributor to it. Bustani himself was a key part of the translation process that I mentioned a few moments ago. But perhaps more importantly, he was also creating new content. He was creating dictionaries and he created an uh, encyclopedia of the Arabs. In some ways, Bustani was exactly what the missionaries had in mind when they created these schools throughout greater Syria. I mean, he admired the missionaries and very much believed in their evangelical gospel. But Bustani was also a product of his surroundings, of the cross-sectarian, pluralistic Ottoman universe that surrounded him. And so the bloodletting of 1860 was particularly difficult for him. I mean, to some extent, Bustani perceived the violence of 1860 as the fanaticism of the uneducated, barbaric lower classes. You need to keep in mind, Bustani was, after all, a member of that relatively harmonious upper class in Mount Lebanon, within which members of the various faith communities had gotten along quite well. So it is not surprising that he arrived at that conclusion. So he saw in this an opportunity to make a call to the people of what we would call today his country. In the wake of 1860, 
Butrus al-Bustani published Nafir Suriya, or the Clarion of Syria. Contained within its pages was a call to coexistence and an end to fanaticism. Bustani drew on his own religious tradition, but he also quoted a hadith and ayat or verses from the Qur'an to make a point that what he referred to as all, you know, quote, true religions call for a type of coexistence and sincerity to your faith is not merely to put up with your neighbors, but to respect them. So far as I can tell, Bustani's manifestos had two distinctive features. One is that Bustani's vision was not secular in the way that we would understand secularism today. It could be better described as, as anti-sectarian. He was not calling for people to abandon their faith or to become less devout or less religious. It was actually quite the opposite. He was calling on all believers to unlock the potential for fraternity that he believed could be found within all true faiths. His work came with a motto, حب الوطن من الإيمان, which is a hadith attributed to the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, but so, so far as I know, this hadith is of very dubious authenticity and, and was widely used both then and now, actually, to justify all kinds of political projects, such as the one that we're talking about. But Bustani was the first in his era to use this hadith to call for a transcendence above the violent sectarianism that he had witnessed. This was the first, his, right, was the first political magazine of its kind in greater Syria. And it is unclear to me whether or not Bustani you know, fully understood the various non-religious forces that were behind the violence of 1860, but it almost doesn't matter because he clearly identified the potential of that violence to pull his homeland into just a bottomless pit, an endless cycle of sectarian conflict. He put forward an anti-sectarian vision to prevent that from happening. Another distinctive feature of Bustani's work comes with the inception of his crowning achievement, the establishment of a school which he called Al-Madrasa Al-Wataniyya, the national school, established in 1870. Now, unlike the missionary schools of which he was a product, his school was not established with the purpose of proselytizing the Protestant faith. And so within a relatively short amount of time, Bustani's school had within its ranks students of all faiths. For the first time, Christian and Muslim children in Mount Lebanon found themselves as part of the same educational experience, with instruction in the language of their homeland, an experience that gave them the potential to imagine each other as neighbors, as brothers, as Arabs. It is widely believed that Butrus al-Bustani's work both in his writing as well as the establishment of the national school, created the first spark that allowed for the emergence of a new kind of Arab, a kind of proto-Arab nationalism. This was the first time ever 
that children of various faith communities sat together in a single classroom and were addressed in a single language. This, I believe, was the birth of the modern Arab nation. Now I want to shift our focus away from Mount Lebanon and back to Palestine because the emergence of missionary schools is having an impact there as well. As I mentioned in the previous episodes, the Tanzimat reforms brought the Ottoman central authorities right to the doors of Palestinians. I mean, the once distant high port was now stretching its tentacles into the far reaches of the empire. The Tanzimat also brought with it a reduced role for the Sharia, and so subsequently a reduced role for those who administered the Sharia. This in turn created a major problem for the empire's educated notable families, especially those in Palestine. If you'll recall from the first season, many of those who were educated were educated for the purpose of becoming Sharia court officials. And so initially, these notable families who were now very much being cornered in this new society, they refused to enroll their children in the missionary schools because they did not trust the missionary schools. I mean, which is completely understandable. These were proselytizing schools, after all. But the fact of the matter was that these schools were the only institutions that were successfully equipping children with the skills to take on the jobs of the expanding Ottoman bureaucracy. Slowly, the children of Palestine's notables began attending the missionary schools as well. And when they got there, they learned something fascinating. The missionaries who taught at these schools, the missionaries who wrote the books, who created these schools, these were people obsessed with Palestine. Not of the Palestine in front of them, but the Palestine of the Bible. If you recall, we also discussed this in season one, the various archaeological and geographical societies that were rushing to Palestine in the 19th century, well, these were exactly the kinds of people that opened up missionary schools in Palestine. And they put an enormous amount of time and effort into, into the creation of maps and land surveys, many of which survive to this very day. Now, these so-called scientific maps were often just biblicized projections being placed atop of an Arab Islamic present. It was an attempt to fit the place names and events of the Bible onto Palestine's present. And the purpose of these maps was often just for the convenience of pilgrims and Christians around the world looking to walk in the footsteps of the Bible. But naturally, these maps also found their way into the classrooms of Palestine. And so Palestinian students who sat in these classes, they learned about, I mean, they learned a lot about Palestine and the Palestine of Europe's imagination. And so they too developed a very real sense of their country. A sense that prior to this era and this particular historic moment just would have been very difficult to imagine. And so in the second half of the 19th century, 
Muslim, Christian, and some Jewish children of Palestine sat together and engaged in the incredible an incredibly powerful act of collective learning. And they did this for the first time. They walked to school together for the first time. They lined up, arrived, and were seated and dismissed together for the first time. They ate and played together for the first time. And they processed maps of Palestine, its mountain ranges, its rivers, its coast, together for the first time. And so in much the same way that Arab identity was born in these classrooms, a unique sense of Palestinian identity also emerged from this learning experience. In the finale of season one, I mean, there was this deep dive into the revolt of 1834 against Muhammad Ali Pasha. And what we saw was a collective moment that involved nearly all of the Muslim Palestinians of the various socioeconomic classes. But now we have an institution that brought together Palestinians from across religious communities. Slowly, very slowly, we can begin to see the contours of a Palestinian national consciousness being born. Now, it's not like these missionaries intended this consequence. It's not like the Palestinians who were sending their kids to these schools knew that this was going to be even a possible outcome. Rather, I like to imagine that there was a classroom somewhere in Palestine where, I don't know, like a Jesuit priest or some American evangelical missionary was going through some biblicized map of Palestine and suddenly one of the students kind of makes a connection and raises their hands and says, so we're all Palestinians, to which the you know, priest or pastor says, well, yeah, okay, I suppose. And another student says, and so you are not a Palestinian. The classroom gets really tense. Now, I don't, I don't actually think this ever happened, but I like to imagine it anyway. It's fun. All right, well, now I feel like I need to put out a disclaimer here. I am not saying that the missionary schools invented Palestinian identity or Arab identity or the Palestinian national movement or anything like that. Palestinians already had a broad sense of Palestine's natural boundaries, but they may not have thought about them all that much. And more importantly than that, even if they knew them, they probably could not imagine them from a bird's eye view or draw the rough outlines the way that even a child can today. I mean, their sense of who they were and where they were like the identity of nearly all people on earth before the modern era, their, their identity or their thought of themselves was much more local. But for these kids attending missionary schools in the late 19th century, national consciousness was an accidental externality. It was a side effect of standardized education. When everyone is learning the same thing, or even similar things, with similar maps, in a similar space, at similar times, it is much easier to imagine yourself as part of a common whole, with a common understanding of the past and present, 
and with a common vision for the future. And these children were all coming to similar conclusions in a classroom that included Muslims, Christians, and Jews. I joked around earlier about whether or not the missionaries or their European backers knew that this was going to happen. I mean, did they know that through their curriculum, they were slowly unlocking the neurological pathways and socio-cultural corridors that would one day suddenly, you know, connect in this blinding spectacle called national consciousness? I somehow doubt it. Besides, things like an organic national consciousness took decades to develop. What I'm describing here is just one more piece in the puzzle. While the great powers of Europe were racing to expand their influence in Palestine and in nearly every other corner of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman government itself could see the ability of the missionary schools to undermine their project. They also needed to penetrate their subject population's sense of self and make those subjects feel connected to this Ottoman whole. And as we've already seen, standardized education is the most effective vessel for a national story. And so in 1869, the Ottomans introduced the Education Act, another absolute cornerstone of the Tanzimat. This piece of the Tanzimat puzzle made mandatory the education of every single child in the Ottoman Empire, regardless of language, region, and even gender. Article 9 of the Education Act states that, uh, quote, in the Ottoman Empire, Sabian, or youth, education is required for girls between the age of 6 and 10 and for boys between the ages of 7 and 11, end quote. The Education Act then goes on to explain that all children must be registered to the local primary school so as to ensure that no child goes unregistered. Article 11 reads that if any child fails to attend school, quote, the teacher will inform the neighborhood muhtar, and then the father, the mother, or the guardian of the child will be summoned to the local education council, end quote. If I could summarize this education policy in one word, it would be ambitious. I mean, you're talking about taking on the education of millions of children in a massive empire that stretches three continents, children who speak a dozen different languages and dialects, children of every imaginable faith background. But this was not something the Ottoman Empire could forego. The purpose here was simple. Emin Everd, in her book, Education and Empire, writes, quote, Education would give the state an opportunity to socialize children at an early age so that they would become loyal to the empire, would be integrated with the other community members, and would also make vocational and fiscal contributions to the empire's economic health, end quote. Building an identity, an Ottoman identity, was one of the main objectives here. 
But this is not easy. In the last few episodes, I characterized the construction of a state infrastructure, you know, bureaucracy, tax collection, administration. I characterized this as a mountain to climb. But in many ways, building a national identity is a far, far bigger mountain to climb. I mean, for starters, in the 10 years prior to the Education Act, the 10 years that effectively saw the abolition of the Sharia, the high port had effectively isolated and antagonized the Muslim scholars of the empire. First, the Ottoman government went about obligating imams and scholars who taught in the Kutab system to register as state employees, which was perceived by the ulama, so that is the Islamic scholars, as an incredibly intrusive measure. Well, it turns out that the intrusion was only the tip of the iceberg. The ultimate goal of the high port was to replace that religious education, that religious educational infrastructure altogether, and to centralize the remaining religious infrastructure that was left behind. Here is Dr. Emin Everd again, quote, This focus on reforming or replacing Muslim primary schools derived from several factors. In the 19th century, the Islamic religious establishment opposed many of the centralizing reforms that the Ottoman state initiated. As a consequence, leaders within the state commonly perceived and depicted the religious establishment as anti-modernist and reactionary. Ottoman reformers thus endeavored to depict the empire as, and to function eventually as, the ideal provider of primary education for its Muslim children a job previously in the hands of the religious establishment. In characterizing the religious establishment as backward, the state conversely empowered itself to define its own educational plans and its school as progressive or, more commonly, as scientific alternatives. When the state initiated its reforms, Although many mektabs and madrasas retained some of their traditional elements and continued to employ some of the same teachers, the state mandated ceremonial transitions authorizing and re-establishing each of these schools with the state's seal of approval. Mektab and madrasa teachers were now subject to retraining and certification, and the schools themselves were subject to licensing, registration, and inspection." End quote. But in attempting to push out and replace the Islamic education system, the Ottomans ran into two huge problems. I mean, to paint the picture here, let's look at the policy in practice as it was implemented in places like Haifa, Yafa, Nablus, Gaza, Al-Quds. Just imagine what the grand opening of a school would have looked like in the 19th century. So I suppose a local government administrator goes out in his best clothes with a shiny shovel flanked by a few propagandists you know, with all of the pomp and circumstance of a 19th century event. A few weeks or months later, you expect to have a shiny building that says school splashed across the entrance. And you inform local elders that the children who attend these schools will then move on to high schools in the regional capital. And from there, the best and the brightest will attend an elite university in the empire's capital, where they will learn the skills necessary to serve the state in modern, 
high-paying, highly technical jobs. That, right there, is the Ottoman Empire's education policy in a nutshell. Great, right? Fantastic. Except for one thing. The empire has no money. And I mean no money. This means that local taxes need to be put in place to fund this elaborate project. It also means that those local taxes would also have to now pay for institutions in the regional capitals and in Istanbul, in the empire's capital. Now you, living in today's age, may be used to this. We regularly contribute taxes to projects that we will never personally benefit from or use. But people in the 1860s in Palestine were livid at this prospect. And believe it or not, this actually isn't even the biggest of the problems facing the Ottoman Empire's education system. There is an even more immediate problem that money alone could not solve. And that problem is, who teaches these kids? Who administers these schools? These are the first modern schools in the Ottoman Empire. This means that you do not have a generation of graduates ready to take on the job of teaching. The lack of qualified teachers was, to put it mildly, a showstopper. And these are the kind of obstacles that stand in the way of a nation-building project like the one the Ottomans are trying to undertake. So the Ottomans decided to try and hit two birds with one stone. It turns out that their most literate, most qualified group was, thanks to their own policies, recently unemployed. I'm speaking, of course, about the Islamic scholars. And so in Muslim neighborhoods, the Ottoman Empire chose to employ imams, qadis, muftis, and kutab as school teachers and administrators in a move that both appeased the scholars themselves, but also quelled any concerns that the parents may have had about the schools being bastions of secularism or atheism or some foreign evil force. And you know what? It worked. In sharp contrast to the missionary schools, these state schools were successful in constructing an Ottoman identity. They gave students a sense of loyalty to the empire, to the sultan, and to the Ottoman nation. And this was the beginning of a decades-long project of Ottomanism. In Turkish, it was called Osmanlik. In Arabic, Al-Uthmaniyyah. And one historian describes Ottomanism rather simply by saying, quote, Ottomanism was an attempt to rescue the empire by uniting its peoples. End quote. Now the peoples in that quote are those disparate religious and ethnic groups that make up the Ottoman world. And so by the 1870s, Palestinians and other Ottoman subjects have the option to attend missionary schools, Jewish schools, or Ottoman schools. And the significance of these different modes of learning and their role in the creation of a cohesive national identity extends far beyond what the students were taught 
in the classroom. I mean, to make this next point, let's just look at the Ottoman state schools. I mean, in theory, each village of 500 families or more would be allocated a primary school, the funding for which came from a complex combination of local taxes and from the central government. Amazingly, this massive deployment of schools was largely achieved by the end of the Ottoman Empire. Anyway, students who progressed beyond the primary level would attend a middle school in the regional capital. So, a student from Jerusalem would attend a boarding school in Damascus, while a student from Nablus would attend a similar school in Beirut. The most advanced students would then have the opportunity to attend the Sultani Academy in Istanbul, in the capital of the empire. The entire process took somewhere around a decade, and it took just a little bit longer for Arabs who had to learn Ottoman Turkish in the process. Students who graduated from the Sultani Academy in Istanbul were expected to form the backbone of the Ottoman Empire's bureaucracy. So just imagine, if you're a bureaucrat in Baghdad and you meet another graduate of the Sultani Academy from Tarablis in modern-day Lebanon, you know that this person has made a journey similar to yours. You know that they probably left their small town for their regional capital and then went to the capital of the empire where they passed through the same rigorous learning process, just like you. This process, this is what Benedict Anderson calls an educational pilgrimage. This process happened all over the world as modernization campaigns created new centers of learning. But this pilgrimage took on a special significance in an empire that, through its centralization campaigns and through the elimination of the Sharia, was reducing the power and influence of the urban notables. And so the creation of a new elite social class gave these urban notables, like the Khalidis, like the Husseinis, like the Tuqans, like the Abdul Hadis, a way to maintain their social standing, a way to thrive in the new world. And in an era of nationalism, this pilgrimage provides an indispensable added benefit. This pilgrimage redefines what the urban elite call home. If you're a graduate of the Sultani Academy in Istanbul, you spent some time calling Damascus or Baghdad or Beirut home. Chances are you haven't been to your home village in somewhere close to a decade, other than for short trips here and there. You seamlessly jump between Ottoman Turkish, Arabic, and French. Your friends, your fellow graduates, come from every corner of the empire. For you, home is the empire. And that is exactly what the educational reformers were looking to accomplish. <sighs> All right. In what turned out to be a pretty lengthy episode, I did my best to show you how the diverse educational landscape of the Palestine of the time and the surrounding areas gave rise to an Arab identity, a Palestinian identity, and an Ottoman identity.
Keep all of that in mind as this series moves forward, because those competing projects will eventually collide. I have to close off on a very, very important note. I've had this little tidbit in my pocket the whole time, and I've been waiting till the end of the episode to share this, so, so here goes. In this episode, I've spoken about missionary schools and Ottoman state schools. Well, something that you need to know about all of those schools is that they all charged tuition. This meant that students of more humble origins would need to find alternative access to education. The poor, once again, look like they are going to be left behind. And it is to Palestine's most vulnerable communities that we turn our attention to in the next episode. 